a God who created everything that would give up his only son for people who do not know him, who've left him, and who are seeking their own way. This is who he, this is who he is and who he'll always be. We owe everything to God. He is worthy. He is wonderful. He is all-powerful. He is awesome. And the God whom we serve is an unchanging God that has given up his most precious and only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, though we deserve it, but be given everlasting life. He is worthy, church. Let's pray and ask God to be with us as we open up his word and find out more about him. God, Father, you are good, not because we determine if you're good or not, because that's your nature, and you have revealed that in creation. You've revealed that in the great things that you've done. You've revealed that on a personal level for those who know you of your goodness that reverberates through every moment of life and sickness. Things are good. Things are going the way that we would hope that they would go when things are hard, when life is crushing, when people are abandoning, when people are mocking, when things are volatile, when things are scary and dangerous. You've proven yourself good through it all. God, there is no one on earth like you, no one in the universe, no thing in the universe. All of it is under your command, under your power, under your creation, under your authority. God, I pray that this morning you'd help us to be people that worship you in true worship, authentic worship, above everything and above every person. God, we pray this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're ready to open up God's word as we continue in our worship together. Now, I said that word worship purposefully because that's what we're going to be talking about. I want to give us a little recap of what we've been looking at and what we're going through. We've got the series called The Summit Blueprint. And we're claiming that this is what we believe to be the design, not just for our church, but for churches in general, for God's people that come together, for God's people that are God's people because they've believed in Jesus Christ. What is God's revealed will and desire for his church? We started out with humility, that God's looking for a certain type of person, a humble person, broken and contrite. And actually, we're going to see that here in worship about a certain type of people and person that God is looking for still, still in the same similar theme. Then we looked at our foundation and we made a point that Jesus, relationship with him and the word of God is the foundation on which those who claim to follow him should stand. And what do I mean by standing on that? What do I mean by foundation? Meaning that, that in, at the core of what you follow and what you want and what you say is your, your true north and your guidance for life is his word. And a personal relationship with Jesus because he is the word. Jesus is the word. You cannot separate the two. 
Last week, we began to look at uh, our actual structure of, of how we accomplish discipleship together. First, we got to abide in Christ. We got to be disciples who are abiding. And then last week we looked at Ephesians and we found out that there is this great collective effort and purpose of God with his people as they are following him individually, but together using their gifts in accordance with one another, following the gifts that God's given to equip the body for the work of the ministry. And in those things, in that organic everyday way of life, as we're following him, discipleship will be happening. And if we, if we try to relegate God's way of discipleship to a simple command that we just go and do, we'll probably neglect some of the things that God's wanting to say. But this is what I want you to be that will help you accomplish the going and the doing in discipleship. Right? So we've, we've kind of given this big introduction before we've even began to talk about our pillars. And today we're going to start talking about our pillars. We're going to look at the first one, which is authentic worship. But I hope you can see why we had to talk about those things prior before we start talking about the pillars, which are, which are the things that we are saying will spring forth from someone who's standing on the foundation in a relationship with Jesus, living their life in accordance with God's word, that these are the things that we believe are, are not exhaustive, but comprehensive and important to accomplish the mission, which is to exalt Jesus Christ by making disciples who follow Jesus. Pillars that reach through the whole gambit of life, and this is what, this is what will happen if someone is standing on that foundation. The first one is authentic worship. I'm going to come down here with you, actually, and I want us together look at the screen. I'm just going to read some verses. I want us to read them together. I want us to pay attention. Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Next verse. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 8, 19. Next verse. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Deuteronomy 11, 16. You shall not worship God that way. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Deuteronomy 12, 4 and verse 31. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land. Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. 1 Kings eleven thirty three. Before we answer what is worship, is it clear already from those few verses in, in, in the Old Testament that worship's a pretty important thing to God? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty clear that worship is a very important thing. Actually, the first time you see the word worship pop up in Scripture, 
though you will see the evidence of worship, but when you see that word used in the book of Genesis, when God reveals himself to Abram as three persons, you actually see Abraham falls down and he worships and he appeals to them and recognizes them, recognizes him as God. And then you see worship begin to pop up through the Bible and it continues and continues all the way through the book of Revelation. Over and over and over and over again, this theme of worship in scripture. Actually, the problematic issue in the Old Testament with God's people, Israel, is that they were constantly worshiping something else beside him, going after, seeking after something besides him. And you see this constant reminder, as we've just read, to his people, don't do that. Your heart's going to be pulled away. Keep your heart on me. Very important theme in scripture. Actually, this is the first pillar because if we neglect authentic worship, if this is not right in an individual's life, nothing else matters because this is foundational for, for a believer is that they worship God alone. Now, what is worship? Let's look at the word. If you look at the Greek and you look at the Hebrew, you'll see this interchangeable word. One in Hebrew sounds like shaka, shaka, shaka. The other one, proskuneo in the Greek, both have the same meaning and are interchangeable and they they would have used these words interchangeably as they were uh, reading Hebrew, but then as they were looking through the Greek as well. It's this idea of, of bowing down, bending the knee, Actually, also this idea of kissing the ring, right? What, what, what is that a symbol of, right? You, you, you get down and you kiss the king's ring, a sign of royalty, a sign of I'm lower than you to pay homage to. Actually, the word proskuneo in the Greek comes from another word. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a uh, a build on another word that actually gives us the picture of a dog licking the master's hand. Think about that. Worship is bowing down and recognizing who is mighty and who is worthy. Which, when you hear the word worship, I want you to think of this. I want you to think of the, this word, and it's on the screen worthship. Worship is worth-ship. We are worshiping something when we ascribe worth to it, when we see it as something that is valuable and worthy and we act accordingly to the worth. Worship is worth-ship. Worship is worth-ship. Now, if I were to ask you, who is a worshiper, what would you say? Who are the worshipers on earth? When you say we are, what do you mean? The church. The church church definitely is worshipers. Let me ask you this. What about people outside the church? Are they worshipers? Now, I'm just going to warn you, it's kind of a trick question. Yes, worship is not a 
Christian word. It doesn't just belong to the church. Worship is a description of something that happens in the heart of a person. Every single person born, whether they say they're an atheist or some type of other different religion or whatever, everyone worships. Why? Because everyone has something that they bow down to, something that they, they prostrate themselves before, something that they would, they would look at as, as kingly, something that they ascribe worth to, something that governs their life that they say, this is worth living for. This is worth bowing down for. Everyone is a worshiper. So as we talk about authentic worship, you'll see there, there's this qualifying word, authentic that we're giving to the word worship, and that's purposeful, and we're going to get to that here in just a second. Here's what I want to talk about next before we move on. I want to talk about and answer this question you're going to see on the screen. How have we gotten worship wrong? That word worship, how has it been misused? And I'm making an assumption that when I ask that question that, that we have gotten it wrong. And the temptation in authentic worship is to get it wrong. Let, 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 me, let me give you two things. Two ways that we get worship wrong in our life or when it shows up and it's not authentic. It's not the way that it should be according to scripture towards God is in two ways. The first one is this, when we compartmentalize it or simplify it or break it up and put it into a, a, a cozy, rosy little box. And I'll tell you what, I experienced the problem of trying to even even simplify a sermon on worship into something that's gonna, I'm gonna be able to talk about for a few minutes and like completely encapsulate it for you to understand. And, and the more I studied it, the more I realized I just can't do that. Because worship is cosmic. Worship is at the depths of the heart. Worship cannot be brought down and compartmentalized. So how do we end up compartmentalizing? When I say the word worship, what do you immediately think of? I heard it here. Singing music, right? How many times have we used our language like this? Let's go to the worship service. Oh man, that was great worship today. And when someone says that, we immediately know what they're talking about. We know they're talking about a a music and a song experience together, right? If we're not careful, we are using worship in the way that it was never intended to be meant meant to be used. Actually, as I look through scripture, I could never Find an instant, Old Testament, New Testament, where worshiping was synonymous with music and singing. Now, before you gasp and say, let me, let me bring in music, though. You often see music accompanying worship. You look through the Psalms and you see the whole book is a songbook. And you see them talking about worship constantly. But worship... Which is, which is a bowing down and a decreasing of self in order to lift up God cannot be simply said to be music. So, so if in our mind, worship has been simplified to mean a musical service, we've compartmentalized it. And the reason that's wrong is because worship is something that infects every fabric of life. And if it's something that we're not doing, and then we come here and we do, and then when we go, we don't do it again until the coming service, there's something wrong with that. That's not worship. We are called to sing, and singing and music becomes an expression of the real and authentic worship that should be on the inside. You see where I'm getting to it? So when we compartmentalize worship, when we try to when we try to say, you know, it's a service, it's a time, 
It's a location. It's a song. It's simply an act. It's, it's not that those things aren't included in expressions of worship. It's that we make it incomplete. And we miss what we should be thinking about when we hear the word worship. And I hope we would go deeper, deeper, when we say let's, let's get together and worship together. That when we think about that, uh, we're not just thinking about music. We're thinking about something that's deep, deeply happening in, our, happening in our heart. And I'm gonna expound on that here in just a little bit. Second way we get it wrong is when we make it about us. Now, I'm gonna ask for permission. Can I speak frankly to brothers and sisters, including myself in it, and we just need to have a little, we just need to have a little family talk about our propensities and our temptations and the realities of the world we live in and the selfishness and sinfulness that remains in our heart. Can, I, can, can, we, can we just talk about that and be honest a little bit? Is that okay? Worship too often, more than, more than it should, way more than it should, it becomes about us and about our experience and about how we feel and about an atmosphere. We exploit it, right? I mean, look, you can make lots of money off that word worship. Exploit it, which means we're using it to serve us in some type of way. This is not what worship is about. I mean, how often do we come together and express this when, when the song that we want's not being played or the type of music that we want's not being played? Or, you know, the service, you know, it doesn't feel the way we need it to feel. And then, you know, we leave thinking, you know, something was wrong with that worship service because I'm not feeling the way I was hoping to feel after I experienced it. There's a consumeristic mentality. I want to consume worship. That's not worship. All of us are included in being guilty with that because the temptation is to, to constantly be tempted by sensuality, which is what false prophets do. And that's how they get you, right? Because we so badly want life to be a sensual experience. And Christianity involves emotions because God made them, but he wants those emotions and all of those sensual affections to be given to him alone. Did you see one of the verses earlier where he says, don't go after and serve other gods because he is a jealous God. What should that What should that evoke within us? God's wanting us to know and he wants to think about us like a spouse who we've been committed to and what it's like when a spouse cheats on another spouse and how jealous and angry that other spouse becomes. Rightfully so because you belong to that person. And God is like, you belong to me. You're mine. I own you in a good way because I've secured the possession of you through my son. I've sought you and seeked after you and given you the riches of my son. You are mine. Now I want you to see the worth and the value of me. And I want my people to give me the affections of their heart. And then we spend time here on planet earth at the end of the day, being deceived, making the worship about us. Now, now, what are we saying is worthy in those moments when we make it about us? What is it that we're ascribing worth to? You know, we don't struggle with bowing down like this. We don't, we don't struggle doing this 
with a, with a wooden object that's been carved from the hands of someone thousands of years ago. We actually read that, don't we? And we think, that's so silly. So silly. I would never do that. And we actually can become deceived thinking that we don't struggle with idolatry, which is worship of something else besides God. But what are we ascribing worth to, bowing down to, saying is worthy to be taken care of, proskuneo, shakha, when we make it about us? You see, our trouble today is not that we struggle with bowing down to objects, though there's a, there's a different type of struggle there. We really do struggle with worshiping ourselves. All right, and we, we feel something on the inside. We say, I've got to please this. I've got to help this. I've got, I've got to make sure that, that this within me gets what it needs. And if someone gets in the way of me getting what I determine that I need, I'm going to fight for it, right? Because this experience is what's valuable. And we in turn, ironically and hypocritically, like say we're bowing down and worshiping God in our expressions, but in the heart there's this, there's this exploitation of worship that reveals that we're really just serving ourselves. I can talk like that about us because that's every human's problem. That temptation to, to pull and, and make life autonomous and, and that temptation to take the place of God. All the way from the beginning in the book of Genesis was where it started and it remains till then. And we need God to help us, bring us back to the heart of worship, which is why it's our first pillar, because we want worship to be authentic. Worship involves the whole person. Authentic worship is involving the whole person. Worship is about God, not about us. It's never about us. It's, it's about how can I please you, master? What is it that you want? What is it that makes you happy? And I don't want to get in the way of that and determine what makes you happy. I really want to know what it is because you are worthy. And I get my, I get my, my joy and my happiness and I extol, X-T-O-L, in the Lord because I believe he is the most valuable thing on planet earth. Worship is about God, not about us. Let me give you an example. Jesus said to the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah, that these people, he said, well, did Isaiah write, these people honors me with their lips, right? All the expressions on the outside. Everything on the outside would, uh, would, would, would match the ritual and the ceremony with what, we, oh, that's genuine worship. But he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He actually says, in vain, do they worship me? I mean, think about that. All that external effort being put in the name of God, but then have God look at it because he is God and he has x-ray and he can see the heart of every person and say, it's in vain. Every single hour and minute and time spent worshiping me in the ritual and the expression was in vain and worthless and amounted to nothing, all because at the end of the day, I can see the heart and the heart's not worshiping me. God dwells in the secret parts of the heart. He can see our hearts. He knows. He knows our hearts. So we get it wrong when we compartmentalize it. We simplify it. We relegate it to a time or a service or something like that. And we get it wrong when we make it about us. Worship is about God. So what do we mean? Here's the big question. What do we mean when we say authentic worship? I've, kind of, I've tried to break it down into two sentences that I think would be important for us to remember. Write down, remember this, and you can see them on the screen. 
Here it comes. A focus on our disposition rather than our expressions. A focus on our disposition before God rather than our expressions and a heart that sees God worthy of every part of life. When we say, hey, we're we're coming together to worship, that's okay to say that. That's a proper sentence. If we're just thinking music, but but those two things aren't the case, we're not worshiping God. Instead, hey, let's come together to worship. We all know in our minds that what we mean by that is we're coming together to bend the knee and to bow our hearts down, to make a, a posture and a disposition of the heart that God sees and what he's looking for, his together. And, how, and however we express that in all of life is a symptom of that. Not a relegated plan time that we do and we're done with. It's when it leaves and it grows and we come together and we sing songs of praise. But if those songs being sung don't emanate from a heart that's just, man, overcome by God, we risk worshiping in vain. Disposition. That means the the actual residing characters and motives of a person's heart. Come on, we know what it's like, don't we? We know what it's like to go through the motions, but inside something's like, man, our loyalty, our allegiance, our affections, our desires, and our wants are somewhere else other than on God. A heart that sees God worthy of every part of life. Now, ascribing worth, ascribing worth to God, genuinely and authentically seeing him most worthy is going to show up in life. And actually, we have been talking about this all through the book of James as we talked about real faith. Real faith manifests authentic worship because there's no circumstance of life that you will compromise your faith on because God is worthy of every pain and struggle of life. All right, I, want, I put some verses up here on the screen and I, you don't have to turn to them. You can take a picture of them. You can write them down. I want to really quick, I want to, I want to go through them and then at the end, we're going to turn to a couple together that I want us to, to look at and to focus on. In John chapter four, which is actually the, the chapter that our pillar is based off of, in John chapter four, you see Jesus meet the woman at the well. And there at the well, they kind of get in this debate Jesus, the woman saying, hey, you know, the Jews say on this mountain is where you should worship. And we say the Samaritans over here is where you should worship. You know, what do you say? And Jesus is like, you got it all wrong. You're compartmentalizing it. The time is coming and is now here where the father is, get this, looking for, looking for and seeking certain types of worshipers. And he says he's looking for true worshipers, or in other words, authentic worshipers. And he says this, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says this, for God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Pretty nuanced, right off the top of the head, we don't really know what that means, so let's take a look at it. Spirit, the word pneuma, makes you think of the wind that you can't see 
but you know its effects are happening. It makes you think of God is spirit. God is not a, a physical thing. He is spirit. He is unseen. He is invisible. Jesus was born in flesh like us. And when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father and he is the God man. But as we're talking about God, the father whom is looking for certain type of worshipers, he's spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. You look at John chapter three, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And he refers to the spirit as a wind that goes and does what it wants to do in the heart of someone. You can't see it, but you can see the effects of it on someone's life. You can't see the wind, but you can see how it manipulates the world around us. Those who are true worshipers are only those who have been born again by the spirit of God. Worshiping in spirit is actually the evidence of the spirit of God working on the inside of a person and manifesting itself. It has to be through the spirit motivating and working in the person to want to fall down and give everything to God. To say that he is Lord of all. John tells us that it's only by the Spirit, only by the Spirit that anyone can even say with their lips that Jesus is the Christ, that he's come in the flesh. A work of the Spirit in someone's life. And the true worshipers are those who've experienced the Holy Spirit and they, they worship God. There's another meaning, seemingly a mean, no, more meaning behind that, that it's not just external things. It's not that location. Worship happens in the spirit, in the heart, in the embodiment of the whole life, but spirit and truth. What is truth, Pilate says? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The whole scripture is like this infiltration of planet earth and the thoughts and the minds of everyone to say, this is what's true, you follow this. And the heart of every individual is trying to figure out the way they wanna go and figure out their truth and live life the way they want to live it. That is rebellion. That is the opposite of worship. That is going and choosing and saying there's something that is more valuable than God. And God says, my worshipers are those who have been moved and saved by the spirit who worship me not in location, but with the whole body, which is where I reside because their body is now the temple and they live according to the word of God. That's John chapter four. I'm gonna move even quicker through some other scripture. You look back in Daniel when you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are being forced to bow down at the sound of the trumpets and the harps, forced to bow down, and they refuse. Right? You see the expression of worship? At the sound of the music, then you worship. And that was expressed in this, this posture and this disposition of the body that's saying, this is worthy. And they refused. Right? Because... God was more valuable than their life in that moment. God was worth more to them than their own lives and their own safety. And they say, king, let it be known we're not gonna bow down to you because our God can save us from your furnace. But even if he chooses not to save us, either way, we're not gonna bow down, right? What are they expressing? They're expressing authentic worship in that moment because when they're tested, the reality of life shows that they truly believe that God is more worthy than anything else, and in that moment, their own lives and safety. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is born. He's a little, little child. And you have the magi and the wise men that come 
and they seek him. They follow the star and they seek him. And the scripture says they, they came and they worshiped him, bowed down and worshiped him. You know, for them, Jesus, the Messiah, was worth the journey and even worth betraying Herod, right? There was this posture, there was this seeking and this, this longing after and this approaching and running to. And actually, when you look at the Old Testament, when Israel was doing it wrong, it's always described like this. They sought after other gods. They, 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 they seeked other gods. They, they bowed down to other gods. They went after, they served that was worship. That was when they were expressing worship. You come to Matthew 14, which is very interesting because they're in the boat and Jesus does miraculous things and it says those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. He did great things. You've done great things. Right? People get to see with their eyes the wonder and the majesty and the greatness and the miracles of Jesus, which appropriately led to them falling down. It's great in the book of Revelation, you see John constantly falling down several times to like worship the angel and the angel's like, get up, don't do that. I'm like you, you worship God. Right, because miraculous things are happening before us and there's no other response than to just like fall on your face. That's worship. Right? Because, because that act is showing what you in the moment are seeing is valuable and is worthy. How about the temptation from the devil to even tempt Jesus to bow down and worship him? Jesus said, no, you don't serve any other God except God alone. Bow down and worship. All right, now I'm gonna ask you to turn. All right, Romans chapter 12, verse one. Romans chapter 12, verse one, turn with me. Do you see what I'm, what I'm trying to exhaust here in the moment? Do you understand what, what I'm trying to communicate is that worship cannot be simply about an expression or about music or about songs or about a service. It has to go deeper than that. We need to think rightly about worship. Romans 12, 1, look what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do something. Look at this. Here's what he's asking them to do, to present Think about it like this. Think about putting something in your hand and like presenting, offering. To present what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual worship. Now, you might have a translation that says your reasonable service. Both those words are so interesting because they mean both Spiritual worship and spirit and truth. Worship. This is, this is how you worship. So something about presenting your bodies, giving it God, say like, this whole body is yours, God. It's a living sacrifice. Whatever you want done to this is yours. But the other translation says reasonable service. That word reasonable is logical. It literally is the word logic. Logical service. 
which is very interesting because if God is who he said he is and he made the whole universe and he has done everything that we've seen, which he has, the most logical, appropriate response to that is to give everything to him. But I think sometimes we read a verse like this and we say, God, that's too much. You're asking me to do what? And right there in that moment, when that goes through our mind, when we read a verse like that, that's a sign that our worth is misplaced. Already we're not seeing God as valuable. Because this is logical. It's like, yep, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds hard and fearful. I know in my flesh that's a fearful thing, but I know that's what I need to be doing. Think about the culture we live in, the culture of worship and how we worship our bodies today. Don't you tell me what to do with my body. I will do with it what I want to, and I will determine all the way down from even the creative design of even the the molecules and molecular structures of my body, I will determine what it is and what it's meant for, not God. And don't you dare imply or say anything against it. You hear the attitude of worship in the culture? The attitude that says, "I, I am God. I determine what I want. Real worship is someone that would say, this whole body is completely forfeit. I'm not using this vessel. I had nothing to do in making it or creating it. I will use it for the purposes and the pleasure of God. And I will not use it for the purposes and the pleasure of the devil that wants me to and is tempting me to and is flooding my eyes and my ears and pulling me to want to operate in this body in such a way that would make me God. Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you. Present, take your bodies and go like this for God and say, this is yours. My body's a living sacrifice. And we may not have grown up in Jewish culture or the Old Testament, but you better believe they understood what that meant, to bring a living sacrifice to God. Jesus is the ultimate example. I mean, what was the example of Jesus, which is what we're supposed to be conformed to? He humbled himself and he was obedient to God. How obedient was Jesus? All the way, God said, I want you to lay your life down and die on a tree. Give your life up. And Jesus said, yes, not my will, but yours be done. Every moment of life, every circumstance of life, given over to God saying, God, you are so worthy and valuable. Though I have things and ways that I want, I will lay them down before you and say, but what do you want? That's what I ultimately want. And I'm seeking to please you. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said it. Whether we're at home in heaven or away on earth, we make it our aim to please him. That's authentic worship. Is that in the heart, right? Is that that something that you're saying you're really like, yeah, I resonate that with my heart. Or maybe are you here or maybe you're listening. You're like, man, I've gotten this wrong my whole life. And I've like protected my heart. Like what you're talking about right now, I just want to run because this is the very thing that I've been trying to get away from is like letting God pierce through the rock of my heart and take control and and forcing me to surrender my life to him. If it feels like that to you, you're not worshiping. You haven't seen the value of God. It's not like something like you have to do. It's the logical response to the God who created everything, made you and gave up everything for you. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing to do. It's the best thing for us to worship God than other things. He said to his people, if they worshiped other gods, they would perish. So think about life. Life never leads in our own 
desires never lead to the joy and the happiness we're looking for. Only when we seek and worship God. We got to keep going. Think about this. When you think about worship, do you think about this verse? Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. Do we think about that when we hear the word worship? Do you know when Job did that? Job did that immediately after he heard that his kids and then all of his livelihood had been taken from him. House fell down and crushed his whole family. His wife survived. And then in the same breath, he has someone else run to him and tell him that he has lost everything of his livelihood. And what is Job's response? He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, but he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said to the Lord, naked I came into this world and naked I'm going to leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job was an authentic worshiper because when he lost everything, it revealed what he saw as most valuable. Those things that he lost were very valuable, but all of it was subservient to the value of God. You know the song, if I have you and nothing else, I have everything. Do we feel that way? Because that was, Job was living that. I want you to turn to Psalm 95 with me. Psalm 95. Written by David. And you're going to see actually what we've been talking, you're going to see music but you're gonna see it separated from worship. But you're gonna see it alongside worship because God has created music and he wants us to serve him by lifting our voices and singing to him. Actually, it's a gift from God that he's given us to be able to connect what we believe with our emotions and express it. It's a beautiful thing, it's a good thing, but it should flow from worship. Am I making sense? Have I, have I, have I exhausted this yet? I think, I think we can keep going a little bit. Read Psalm 95 with me. Let's look at this. There's this call. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, David says. Let us make a a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. A title given to God because they had experienced it. And all those who are his understand he is the rock of our salvation. He says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the Lord is a great God, right? He's always, always giving reasons to worship, always giving reasons and validating and qualifying why we're singing like we are, while we're bowing down like we are, right? Because, because God is a great God, a great king above all gods. We don't talk in that language, do we, about different gods today, little g, but back then it was all around actual, actual idols, gods that they were constantly being tempted to, that, that God was all the time showing how he was greater than those little gods, those man-made things. And the declaration is, God is a great God above all gods. Now listen to this. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. So he's appealing to creation. He's our creator. But he says this, the sea is his for he made it and his hand formed the dry land. Back in that day, the sea was worthy of reverence because the sea in the mind of the pagan represented the all 
powerful being that could not be conquered. Why? Because the sea was terrifying, huge, and all-encompassing with the depths. They actually, you know, the, they, they talk about the abyss. You know, it's almost like going down into the heart of the sea is like going to hell. But then you have God and his word coming along and revealing to his people, I made that. I made it. I'm greater than that. Right? What are the things in our life, we may not look at the sea like that, but what are the things or the people or the ideals or the philosophies or the things we're tempted to look at as powerful here on earth and serve? But look what he says here in verse six. Oh, come, let us worship. And then what do you see? And bow down. You see the disposition? You see the posture? This is worship. Let us worship and bow down. And authentic worship will be the bowing down that has to start in the heart. And maybe, maybe we as God's people, maybe actually start expressing that and actually bowing down before him in our private life, right? Giving him this posture, right? A way of expressing it. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to test and put to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. Psalm 95 is the, 95 is the heart and the warning that I'm trying to get at today. I've set up everything else so I could get to this, this psalm to help us focus. How do you go from singing great noise and worshiping to all of a sudden this great warning. Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter three. And the writer of Hebrews ascribes this quote to the Holy Spirit speaking. As the Holy Spirit said, today, if you hear his voice, don't do this. Don't harden your hearts as it was at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So what is he talking about here? And then he says, 40 years they wandered. And he said, think about this. God's saying, I loathed that generation. You come to the New Testament, and you see that God's like, man, I am seeking for true worshipers. I want a certain type of person that will worship me in spirit and truth. The wilderness story that God gave us is supposed to be a representation of our individual lives. Man, being in the wilderness is not fun, right? You don't get the food you want. You don't, you don't, you know, you, you get uncomfortable. You have to worry about the weather. Like being in the world, like we're in the wilderness. Our lives are the wilderness. But he gave us a great example. Jude and Peter both tell us that these things were given as examples for us to look at. How do we know they weren't authentic worshipers? They were the people of God, the slaves of Egypt that Moses came in and they released them. They were the people of God. Yet God had made a choice on his part to choose them and to use them, but they responded in rebellion the whole time, the day of rebellion. That though they had seen the work of God, they heard it and they saw it constantly. Their hearts were constantly pulled to serve these earthly Things They desired in the heart to actually go back to slavery. What does slavery represent? The sin and the way of life where we were doing things our, our way, the things that made us comfortable where we felt security and we felt pleasure. But that's slavery, the desire to go back to it. And it says they constantly put God to the test. 
They put him to proof. Basically, God, if you are worthy, I need to see it. And then I'll determine if I'm going to present my body as a living sacrifice. You are not an authentic worshiper if that's your relationship with God. Right? I'm experiencing something in life right now. Oh, man, God's not good. He, I thought he was who he said he was. I, what are you doing to me, God? What, what, what's going on? Come on? You wouldn't do this. Come on, you said you love me. Come on, come on, God, I need this thing over here. Don't, don't you care? Don't you hear my prayer? I need this. This is the way I need life to go because I'm God and I need to make sure that I'm happy and you've got to serve me, God. Come on, give me this thing. Right? We may not overtly say that, but is that happening in our hearts? Man, God's got the x-ray and he sees. God says, I loathed that generation. He said, they are people who go astray in their heart. You know, they were, they actually did listen and they eventually, you know, like a kid who's like, fine, I'll take out the trash, went to the temple and did all the ritual ceremonies of worship. But what does God care about? They went away astray in their heart. And what do you see through the Old Testament? You see God like, man, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Sick of it. You're, you're doing the things outwardly that, yeah, I've told you to do, but I see your heart and I just, I don't even know, ugh. You imagine being married to someone? And it's like you can see in their heart. It's like work to love you. It's like, I don't even like you. I don't love you. And it's like, oh, look, look at how painful it is that I have to like be your spouse and love you. Like, is that, does that excite anyone? Man, man, I'm jealous for that. God's a jealous God in a consuming fire, which is why he says this at the end of Psalm 95. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest and you go to the book of Hebrews, and he's reiterating that same thing in the New Testament, using this as an example. Speaking of Hebrews, if you look at the end of the book, the conclusion of talking about what Jesus has brought and how awesome it is, genuine worship, living for God. And he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable Worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. John the Baptist hated when people were trying to like follow him like he was the Messiah. And he was constantly reiterating to people, it's not me. I got to get out of the light here. I'm just preparing the way for the one to come. What are the famous words of John the Baptist? He must increase, but I must decrease. Worship is increasing the worth and the value of God, and that can only happen when we are decreasing ourselves, which is why humility was so important for the first week because God's looking for the humble and the contrite in heart and those who tremble at his word. You come to the New Testament, God's looking, still looking for a certain type of person. He's looking at the hearts. He's wanting faith and trust. He's wanting based off the testimony of what you've been given as you stand on the foundation, as you hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus, you come into that, that belief and that faith where you give your life to him and you say, I believe you died for me. You rose from the dead. That I can't save myself. I know I'm a sinner. I'm in great need of help and I'm only dependent on you, God. And in and, and that moment, that expression there is proof of something that's happening on the inside, that genuine faith and the spirit indwells you and lives inside of you as you are now the temple. Your bodies are the temple where authentic worship should be happening that's infected 
tasting every aspect of life. That when you sit down before a plate of food, you don't just say a prayer because it's routine, but you look at the food and you say, man, I have nothing apart from Jesus. He is providing everything I need. This body dies if I don't get enough of this. And I have so much of it that I can't stop eating it. So much of it, I got to like search YouTube videos to find out how to lose less of it. Overflowing. And now we expect it. We have the right to it, right? Oh, no, God. Thank you for this plate of food you're worshiping. God, thank you. I woke up this morning, man. My like knees hurt. My back hurts. Like everything, like just work is killing me. It's the last thing I want to do. But I wake up and I remember your mercies are new every morning. And in the solemn quietness while your spouse or your kids or whoever, or, or if you're not married, if you're young and on the edge of your bed, you just bow your head and you say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. No one else is looking. Let us not be like the Pharisees who prayed, who made their expressions of worship and their, their loyalty to God just this expression before people. And Jesus said they have what they're looking for. They're getting the notice of man, the notoriety. That's all they're going to get. But I'm looking for the people who are worshiping me authentically. So when we have a pillar out in the front and you come in the door and you see that pillar, We're not just trying to tell you, market our church and say, hey, when you come here, you can expect authentic worship. No, what we're saying is, look, this pillar's here, that every individual standing on the foundation, this is what we're saying is like of utmost importance that should be emanating from your life as a heart of authentic worship. And then we walk down here together and we express what's really on the inside with music and song because God is worthy. God has laid down the life of his only son for us all. And from the cross, gasping for breath, he looked at those who were gambling for his clothes and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And between them stood two criminals who was, that's what we are, where we deserve to be. One rejected. One did not see Jesus as valuable. The other one said, you are the son of God. God, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Authentic worshiper, this criminal who spoke true and ascribed true worth in their heart to who Jesus was and who God is. What type of worshiper are you? You are a worshiper, but is your worship authentic and what God is wanting and looking for. It's going to involve you laying down your life for God and ascribing worth to him above all things, especially ourselves. Let's pray. Father, God, you've done great things. We are naked before you. And I believe with with myself and my brothers, we all hopefully would admit and confess what we've missed this. We've made it about us. God, you would work in our heart. You'd, You'd quickly, after we've been convicted and we've confessed in the light, you would flood us with excitement and joy 
for the kingdom that you've given us that can't be shaken. And then what you receive from us is a genuine song of praise that that shows you we are real worshipers, authentic, that are giving you what you want, what you want every day of our life, everywhere we are, giving you what you want. God, let this be the expression of our worship and help us and be patient with us and merciful with us as we strive to worship you every day of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jasper. Let's stand together. And we, we often say this, that a good message like that demands a response. But we don't just responding to the things that we have learned, but we're going to have an opportunity to do it. The end of Psalm 63 says, my soul clings to you. And beyond just knowing that God is worthy of being worshipped and being thankful for what God has done, what Jasper's speaking to is this, this urgency and this awareness of a great need that we have to literally cling on to him. Have you ever been scared before and you were with somebody that was stronger and you just clung on to them and maybe you know that feeling like when you were... I want to encourage us as a family just to take these last few minutes of our service to worship with actually a new song, but one that you'll learn quickly and encourage you to take some time just dwelling in his presence, just clinging, forgetting about the time for a minute, forgetting about what's coming next and saying, God, if you're seeking worshipers, I wonder if you see me as you scan the horizon. I wonder if you see me. I wonder if you see a willingness in my heart and desperation. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that first in our hearts, to make us that, and then to take full advantage of this opportunity to just sit in his presence and sing to this King of glory. Come and fill this place because we just, we just want to be with you. We have to be with you. So let's take this moment together as a family and do this, okay?